and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and it's my honor to welcome Scott Turow to the program today. In addition to being an international best-selling author, Mr. Turow is an attorney and has served as the president of the Authors Guild. His novels often take place in the fictional Kendall County, which is a stand-in for Chicago and Cook County, Illinois. The heart, but not always the star of these books, is defense attorney Alejandro Stern, known to most as Sandy Stern. Now in his mid-80s, Sandy is contemplating his retirement in the new novel, The Last Trial, which is published by Grand Central. Mr. Turo joined us from Naples, Florida. Well, does it beat flying around on a, a regular publicity tour this way? You know, yes, I think it does. But, you know, what you miss, and that's important, is the personal contact with readers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, by legend, there are people like Mary Higgins Clark who literally made their career that way, that there was no place too small, no, you know, no gathering too little for, for Mary to show up. And, you know, she supposedly built her following one reader at a time. And that's not exactly my goal, but I do think part of the importance of a book tour is, you know, to get the author out from behind the paper facade, you know, just let, let people see who you are. So I do miss that part of it. I have to admit it, Steve. In the past, were you a bit of a germaphobe because these type of tours, especially if they happen in the, the wintertime, can be kind of scary in, in germ perspective? Well, I, I have to admit over the years, you know, I have learned to wash my hands after a book signing. But I'm not exactly a germaphobe, but years ago I had my spleen removed. Mm. So I am probably a, not much different from other people. But for about 20 years there, I was more prone to bacterial infections. So I was careful that way. But, you know, I, I just don't know when, when that kind of contact is going to be possible again. You were very fortunate that you set the book for the contemporary action in the, in the novel last fall instead of setting it sometime this year. Yeah, that would be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, no, no question. <laughs> you know, you set the book in the present and then the present is so radically different that it's, it's like the sign that I'm sure you've seen, you know, the, in a, I don't know where the bookstore is, but it, the sign says the apocalyptic fiction section has been moved to current affairs. <laughs> so how do you think the government and people of Kendall County would handle this quarantine mm. lifestyle? You know, probably as well as, uh, as anybody else, although, you know, the real Chicago is having a tough time. You know, I'm not there. I'm down in Naples, Florida. Because, frankly, because our children are living in, uh, we divide our time between southern Wisconsin and Evanston, Illinois, and there are children occupying both houses. So don't exactly know what's going on in Chicago, but I look at the numbers and they're they're not so hot. So yeah, it's pretty scary. Yeah, my doctor has a son who's an ER doc on the south side, which is he's being euphemistic for one of the poorer neighborhoods in Chicago. And he says it, there's absolutely no difference right now uh, from, you know, the height of the pandemic. So we'll just have to see. But it's a very strange time for all of us. And anyway, I'm sympathetic to arguments that, you know, we've got to try to 
live our lives as much as we can. But that is not going to include book signings. I can, I can tell you that, not for several months, if at all. Now with all of Sandy Stern's health problems, he would be one that would have to really stay behind closed doors and, and not get out and about. Yeah, at 85 years old and a cancer patient with a lobe of uh, well, a lung missing, he would be in hiding. He wouldn't just be in quarantine. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that, I, I've actually thought about that. This is, you know, I, and I've sort of been weighing for the book that I'm working on now, whether COVID is going to get stern. Is that going to be a background event? But I haven't haven't made up my mind about it yet. But I think he would be one of those people who would be really imperiled in this pandemic. And he's already thinking about taking himself off the stage anyway, because at the beginning of the book, we learned that he's thinking about retiring. Yes. This is his last trial. You know, he's representing uh, his old friend, Kirill Pafko, who was the researcher and I, I I guess you would say inventor of a cancer medication called G. Livia, which ironically has prolonged Stern's life almost magically. But it turns out that Kirill has won approval for for the medication uh, without mentioning to the FDA that while many patients have beneficial results, there is a smaller cohort who dies suddenly of what uh, ultimately is recognized as an allergic reaction. And so Kirill, who arranged for Stern to get the drug, even while it had not yet even been approved for human use, Kirill comes to Stern and says in substance, I saved your life in my professional capacity. Now you, in your professional capacity, save mine. And because he's been charged with in federal court with racketeering and insider trading, mail fraud, and even murder, Stern agrees, despite being 85 years old, that you know he will come off the bench and fight the fight the good fight for for Kirill. So his daughter, his law partner, thinks he's crazy and sort of pricks her father's balloon because he is enthusiastic about once more being at the center stage after a very successful career. She says, Dad, don't you get it? He wants a friend to defend him so he can lie to him. Uh, he wants somebody who's not going to press him and, uh, you know, would be too embarrassed, you know, to tell him what he's saying is baloney. So that's that's the setup for the book. But this is definitely the end for Stern. Now, with Insider trading and prescription drug approval, these are really murky subjects even for experts. Mm-hmm. And you had to put both of them in a book. How much research did you have to mm-hmm. do? Well, you know, I'm, uh, I've continued to work as a practicing lawyer, although not full time. And if you have, as I have had, a white collar criminal practice, insider trading it has to be something that's been on your docket at one point or another. So. I was very familiar with the law in that area and didn't have to brush up on it. The uh, pharmaceutical approval process, however, at the FDA is remarkably opaque, if I can put it that way. I really think 
uh, it makes the internal revenue code read like a nursery rhyme. <laughs> it's so complex and so arcane that I ultimately threw up my hands and said, "Look, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna get this. This is years of study." Just and I, you know, relied on various experts in the area. I said, "You know, is this in outline correct?" And I was assured it was. But of course, for me. This ends up being fortuitous, the fact that the novel explains the drug approval process, because that's a subject in the news these days. People are trying to understand why it would take 18 months to get a vaccine or why remdesivir, why it's not widely available. And, you know, basically the the book Certainly, it wasn't written. It was written <laughs> to be a page turner, but it certainly explains what happens and why, and what happens with with G. Livia. That is, that you the drug appears to be helpful and, in fact, prolongs many lives, but you still can't ask patients to take it without knowing that there's a risk that they're going to drop dead in a year, and that risk is not disclosed, and. You know, and they, and that's the problem that the FDA always faces, and that's why, you know, the search for a vaccine or for uh, a therapy for people who've got COVID-19, that that's why that process is so elaborate. So that you know, the side effects and the drug interactions, uh, all of that stuff can be studied and documented, so that people and doctors can make an intelligent choice about whether the benefits outweigh the risks. Technically, the problem that creeps up is actually addressed in that boilerplate five-meter-long piece of paper you get inside of a, a prescription drug box nowadays. It's just not. It's just right. but it's just standard to include that pretty much in every drug. Right, it is, and you know, Stern Stern tries to make a big deal out of the fact that in that mice type, somebody refers to it. There, there is a statement that you know an allergic reaction is possible. All the experts just basically give it the back of their hand. And the problem with trying a case to a jury is they all know that they have never, ever read the PPI, the, the, the pharmaceutical product insert. So they know that's not much of a defense. Now, is it ever a good idea to represent a friend in court? Well, I've done it a couple of times. And the first time... My friend was charged with wrongdoing in front of the Attorney Registration and Disciplinary Commission in Chicago. And he told me that they didn't do what he was accused of doing. And it turned out that he was absolutely correct. He was basically being strike-suited by a, an unhappy uh, former employee who was trying to you know, in, in, enhance her, her severance situation. The other time, a man that I uh, have known since childhood, and actually didn't have that much contact with as an adult, came to me. And uh, I was representing him with, along with one of my junior partners. And she told me that she'd gone over to the courthouse to read the pre-sentence investigation, which is the long report that the probation officer puts together. And uh, in this case, there was a lot of psychiatric information. And she came back and told me she'd read the what's called the PSI. 
the pre-sentence investigation. I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll make sure I see it tomorrow. She said, don't go. Don't read it. You've known this man your whole life. You're just not going to want to know what's in there. And I, I took her advice. I didn't, I didn't need to know, but you know, it, it, it certainly happens. Uh, and it happens a lot. I remember a case in Chicago where one of the prominent partners at one of the big law firms and his wife were both charged with a crime of, you know, fraudulent billing of clients. And not only were, was the defense lawyer, one of his closest friends from law school, but so was the judge. So, you know, these things do happen. And, you know, it's, the advantage is that there's a bond of trust to begin with. And it takes a while to get to that point with, with a client. And so even though Marta Stern's daughter with whom he's practiced for 30 years says to him that, you know, dad, he, you know, he just wants to lie to you. You know, sometimes the reverse is true. It's easier for the client to tell you the truth. So although Stern has always been one of those defense lawyers who never asks the client at first uh, about what happened because he doesn't want the client to, to change his story later on, which would ethically oblige Stern not to let him testify. So he stays on the edges of that. But as we see it goes along, Dr. Pofko, he's not exactly a guy who trades in the truth. No, that to say the least is is true. Pafko is a you know complex figure. He's won the Nobel Prize in medicine. He's an acclaimed cancer researcher. He's head of a huge lab at the university and also has this pharmaceutical company he founded on the side, which increasingly is his, his principal occupation. And his his life is one that is built on a structure of deceit and and lies, which is, as Stern ultimately views it, very unfortunate because he's actually a really good doctor. When Stern was his patient, uh, when, you know, Kirill had to examine him to decide whether he could first be treated with G. Livia, Stern found him an incredibly empathetic doctor who, who who filled him with hope in what he thought was a hopeless situation. But, you know, that's not what that's not what Kirill wanted. Kirill wanted, you know, vast public acclaim that of course comes with being a Nobel Prize winner. He got a taste of that adulation and he didn't want to give it up. Correct. You know, and Stern is always somehow in mind, because they're both approaching the end of their lives, Stern is always asking himself, how do I compare the life I've lived with the life that that Kirill has lived? And, you know, and he concedes near the end of the book that, you know, Pafko's name will, you know, it's quite likely it'll be remembered 500 years from now. Whereas Sandy Stern you know, will be forgotten by anybody but his grandchildren, you know, in a, in a matter of years, even though he's been an incredibly successful defense lawyer. 
even the younger criminals in town don't know his name now. <laughs> exactly. At one point in the novel, Stern contemplates retirement and thinks, well, maybe I'll go over to the state courts and occasionally stand in on a criminal case. But then he realizes that probably no one in the courtroom, certainly not the young defendant, he'll be lucky if even the judge recognizes his name. And, you know, he was, of course, at one point in his life, you know, one of the leading criminal defense lawyers in the country. But, you know, that passes fleetingly. With Sandy thinking about retirement so much and you, you know, you're an age, you're quite a bit younger than Sandy, but you're an age where a lot of Americans do retire. Oh, for sure. Of any of your projects or uh, obligations, do you think you're going to be looking at slacking it up on in the next few years? Well, I can't guess how much longer I'm going to go on practicing law, but my my bet is it's not going to be that much longer. You know, I made a deal a year and a half ago with my law firm to stay for another two years. So, you know, we're 18 months into that and I'm not positive there'll be an inclination on either side for me to, you know, re-up as it were. And you know, and part of what impels that is that my friends, my my age peers from the U.S. Attorney's Office, which are really the, the people who, you know, when you're a young prosecutor, you've forged these bonds. And those are the people I've always practiced with in the sense that, you know, we're in the same cases and we refer cases back and forth to one another. Well, they're they're hanging it up. Part of that has to do with the structure of big, big law firms where, you know, it's sort of an all or nothing proposition. If you don't want to work 2,200 hours a year, then you're better off riding into the sunset and handing off your clients. But a lot of them have retired already. And that has an effect on the practicality of, of you continuing to practice. So I don't do that much anyway. Been part time for many years, and right now I'm down to one pro bono project and one paying case. But you know the the referral sources are basically gone anyway. So logic says you ought to hang it up, and you know, and I and I probably will. But that's not where most of my energies energies as a person or anything else have gone for the past couple of decades. You know, I'm a writer principally, and I don't intend to stop doing that. But I did turn 70 last year. And, you know, you do recognize that there's there are many more years in the rearview mirror than there are lying ahead, uh, even in the best and most fortuitous of circumstances. So the fact that Stern is trying his last case and contemplating his own demise. He's he's only, you know, he's only a few steps ahead of me. For us lay people who aren't involved in jurisprudence, I think a lot of us can identify with Pinky. Yes. The strange choices we've made in life. So is there any real life inspiration for Pinky or is she someone you made up by the whole cloth? You know, I, I, I literally, I don't know anybody like Pinky. My kids are certainly my younger daughter is an age peer of Pinky's, but her friends were not anything like Pinky. And my stepkids are not that way either. So, 
she really was a, a product of of my imagination, but I had a lot of fun with her. Pinky is Stern's granddaughter, and she serves as a paralegal in the Stern law firm. Not that her aunt, Stern's daughter, not the mother of this woman, but Pinky is the the daughter of Marta's sister. She'd been she'd have been happy to fire Pinky a long time ago, <laughs> and 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 even Stern acknowledges on the first day of trial, he looks over and he sees her there and, and he, he can't keep himself from experiencing a certain amount of relief because it would not be the first time that Pinky had gone AWOL at a critical moment. But in, in as the novel progresses, she she proves to be a very important part of the defense team. Earlier in the year that most of this novel's taking place in the late fall, for the contemporary action, but earlier in the year, in the spring, Sandy got his bell rung pretty hard in a, a hit-and-run auto accident. And it's Pinky who has kind of helped keep him focused and saying this is an important thing that we, we take care of. And she's moved in with her grandfather. They are the oddest of roommates since if she's there to take care of him, uh, he can't figure exactly how since she disappears for days at a time. But one of the things that emerged in the novel while I was writing it that I felt great about was was the bond between the grandfather and the granddaughter, which, you know, defies reason. And yet they are both, as it turns out, deeply dedicated to one another. But as you know, it it, <laughs> it involves Stern having to accept uh, her as she is for all her oddness, but you know that there is still something there, and uh, you know personally, that's one of the things in the novel I feel really good about. Now, as if trying a case for murder, fraud, and insider training isn't complicated enough, Carol's personal life is just a minefield that the defense has to tap dance through. Right, Stern has always known Carol as the husband of Donatella, uh, his also Argentine-born wife. The, the Pafkos and Stern himself are all Argentine immigrants. Uh, and she's a very formidable, cultured woman who was a close friend of Stern's first wife, uh, who died 30 years before. And so he's he's known the Pafkos only in, in that way. Well, it's it's not long before he discovers that um, Kirill always had, has kept, you know, a, another woman on the side. It, originally, it was the woman with whom he founded the company, Dr. Ennis McVie, and then in events that took place uh, much more recently, uh, he threw Ennis over and began consorting with the with the young marketing director in the company. But, you know, and Stern tries not to judge him because it's not useful in the attorney-client relationship, but th there are many moments where he's put out with Kirill because of the way he conducts his personal life. Because it also puts a strain on his friendship with Donatella as well, not even thinking about professionally. Correct. You know, he's, he's very loyal to Donatella. You know, she's been a friend of many, many years standing as well. And he thinks of her as, you know, the, a, a formidable intellect and charming, 
you know, very cultivated person. And, uh, you know, he's, he's put in this very odd position uh, as he learns about Kirill's infidelities. You know, he, he's, it, it's very much like the story I was telling before where my young partner said, you know, don't go to the courthouse and read, you know, what the psychiatrist has to say about this guy. You don't want to know it. And in some ways, in becoming acquainted with the serious failures in the Pafko's marriage, uh, Stern is, is, used, is learning stuff that he really doesn't want to know. Uh, he could have lived just as well without it. But, you know, his role as a lawyer and the facts of the case inevitably make him, make him aware of that. Now, one of the lines that really stood out for me while reading the book was, laughter, it turns out, is the soul of liberty. I, I really think there's something to that, that, you know, you find people in authoritarian societies forbidden from being able to laugh at their, at their leaders. And, uh, you know, this, this comes up in the context of Stern's memory of seeing a famous comedian on trial for obscenity charges. So you mentioned earlier that perhaps this may not be the last story that Stern is, even though he's retired from the profession. Right. The question is how long he lives. And if he is still alive, there will be a reference to him in the next book, I, I promise you. And uh, if I write the book I think I'm writing, there will, there will be more than a passing reference. Because while he's not the star of every Kendall County book, he is pretty much the heart of the series. Well, you know, since I've written about the law in Kendall County in every one of these novels, and since Sandy Stern is a lawyer's lawyer, he is, at least in my universe, the first citizen of Kendall County. And, uh, you know, he always passes by. He's a, such an eminence in the legal community, it would be hard to imagine him not making some kind of appearance. Did you get to go to Buenos Aires for research? We did. I've been there uh, a number of times. For many years, I traveled for the State Department as sort of a cultural ambassador. Uh, and that was, I went down the first time for that and the, the Feira de Libros and, you know, the book fair mm -hmm. in Argent, in Buenos Aires. And then, then my daughter ended up studying there. So I went down to visit her and can't remember how I, but this was my fourth trip to BA when I went down. And I just wanted to look at some of the neighborhoods where Stern would have grown up. And of course, you know, it's, it's 65, 70 years later. So it, they, they don't exactly look the same, but I just wanted to sort of relocate my imagination. And, uh, and it, you know, it was a very useful trip. Buenos Aires is a great city. There's, there's no way around that. It's, uh, it's one of those world capitals. It's always nice to have a good trip that coincides with your profession, too. 
you know, my friends, of course, rip me mercilessly because it's like, are you going to deduct this trip? And I'm like, <laughs> of course I'm going to deduct this trip. I'm going on business. And, uh, you know, they, they, they don't buy it. But Well, you put in your eight hours. and I did. We did. The rest of the day is yours. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mr. Turo, I want to thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been very much a pleasure and an honor speaking with you. We can't wait till the next one comes out. Thank you very much. It's very nice of you to give me your time, and I'm grateful. So thank you so much. Take care and please be safe. You as well. Scott Turo is the author of the novel The Last Trial, which is published by Grand Central. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.